I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to this week's book show where I'm back in studio after self-isolation last week and not at home with a coffee in my hand in my pyjamas presenting a radio show. This week, Sarah Crossan talks about her book One with the Giants Causeway Book Club and Stephanie Preisner has a wish list of books that haven't actually been written yet. But first... John Banville has long championed the work of Hubert Butler, who, as an essayist, was, he says, very much the peer of George Orwell. Butler's work wasn't collected in print until the 1980s, when he himself was in his 80s. He was a proud Kilkenny native and a member of Irish ascendancy stock who wasn't afraid to speak his mind. And he saved several lives by helping Jewish people escape Nazi tyranny during World War II. To find out more about the life of Hubert Butler and why you should read him, I'm joined by John Banville. John, welcome to the book show. Hello, good to be here. Uh, Hubert Butler, uh, you you say as an essayist, is every bit the equal of George Orwell? Yes, in Ireland we're not sufficiently aware that we had one of the great writers of the century in the English language, in Hubert Butler. He is as great as the greatest essayist of the 20th century. He's certainly up there with Orwell and maybe a little bit above because he wasn't parochial in the way that Orwell sometimes tended to be. Hubert Butler was a great internationalist. <laughs> he didn't bother very much. He, he loved writing, but he wasn't so much interested in publishing. He published usually in local newspapers and magazines. He was associated with the Kilkenny magazine. And you know, quite a few of his essays remain unpublished. So he was a quintessential Anglo-Irish a term he didn't like, but Anglo-Irish Protestant gentleman living in his house, in Georgian house in Maiden Hall in Kilkenny and enjoying his life and observing the world and the world's affairs with an amused and acerbic and extraordinarily kindly eye. And, you know, uh, we have to pay huge debt to Anthony Farrell of Lilliput Press. I, I think Anthony started up Lilliput Press in order to publish Hubert Butler. Um, so, you know, we owe great debt to, to Anthony Farrell because he persuaded Hubert Butler to collect the essays into four volumes, beginning with Escape from the Anthill back in the 80s. And since then, he's been published by Alan Lane Penguin Press. He's been published by Notting Hill Editions in two volumes, which I edited, uh, one on international essays and one on Irish essays. Very beautiful little books, by the way, if you want to get hold of them. So he, you know, he was prolific, but he wasn't pushy, no. There is a, a sense as well that you've spoken about his, his background. He was one of the Kilkenny butlers. He wasn't just part of the, the aristocracy. Being a, a Kilkenny butler, that was very important to him, wasn't it? It was very important, but he emphasised always uh, that his was a cadet branch of the family, that he wasn't one of the grand butlers. But yes, he was proud of the name. He made no apologies for being a settler. His family came here in the wake of Henry II, so they've been here for a very long time indeed. I think 800 years or so entitles him to a name of Irishman. Uh, he was, as he said himself, a Protestant nationalist, and he emphasised throughout his life the importance of Protestant nationalism in this country. And I agree with him, he lamented the partition of the country because, as he said, he lamented it because we lost that great northern contrarian tradition. Wolf Tone and these people, they were all, they were all Protestant northerners um, and they fought for 
uh, Irish independence. Uh, but they have been, you know, sort of wiped somewhat from Irish history. And Butler was, was very aware of that. And saying so in the 1930s, and especially in the 1940s, 1950s, did not make him popular here. <laughs> we all know how intolerant the Ireland of the 1950s was. And he was one of the people who suffered from it. But he didn't complain. He didn't moan. He didn't shake his fists. He retired, as he said, to his few fields down in Kilkenny. He lived a good life and wrote superbly well. One of the maybe more notable of his activities, and I mentioned it in the introduction, was his helping Jews escape Austria when it was annexed by the Nazis. Yes, he was in Vienna in 1938, and he said afterwards that that was the happiest time of his life because he did work in helping Jews to escape. It was great work that he did. Wonderful humanitarian work. Again, he didn't shout about it, he didn't crow about it, he didn't say, tell us what a wonderful person he is. He just did it. He's one of the people in, in history, and especially in Irish history, whom I admire absolutely. Perhaps maybe tell us a little bit else about the, the, the scope of his writing beyond what we've spoken about already. He wrote about innumerable subjects. Uh, he had a voracious mind. Uh, he was curious about everything in the world. He wrote about the Right to Life movement in America in the 1980s. He wrote about life in Leningrad and, uh, in, in the 1930s. Um, he had a, a little icon, religious icon, which his landlady put in the laundry bag because she was a devoted communist and wouldn't have religious pictures around. And then he wrote about Ireland. He wrote about life on the banks of the Nore River, which he, which he loved. He wrote a wonderful essay called The Eggman and the Fairies, which sounds like a light piece, but it's not. It's, it's a very dark, very terrifying piece in a way about a woman in the 1890s who was burnt to death by her family because her husband believed she was a fairy. It's an essay I would recommend everyone in this country to read. It's not a, an angry indictment. Uh, Hubert Butler never raised his voice. That was his great strength. He never had to raise his voice because the power of what he was saying and the power of his prose style was enough. He didn't need loudness. He didn't need noise. But it is an indictment of the country as it was in those days and of the power of the church. Um, I know I keep banging on about that, but uh, you know it's, it's a subject worth banging on about, I think. Perhaps maybe I can, I can just ask you, just, just to finish, why has Hubert Butler been overlooked, do you think? Well, the trouble is, I'm just saying this to you, I don't know. He probably should be on, on school curriculums. Hubert Butler's essays should certainly be on the school curriculum. The young should be reading him. It is a civilised voice and that is necessary now more than ever. It's a literate voice. It's a fair voice. It's not strident. He speaks very calmly, very wisely, and very humorously. His account of his early education in English public school is, is hilarious. He should be better known. I, I don't know why he isn't. I think the fact is that he wasn't taken up by his peers. When I was growing up and began to read people like Benedict Kiley and Sean Fuelan, I never came across Hubert Butler's name mentioned, uh, although he was treated uh, as badly as they were by the state and the church. But I guess he was outside their circle. And also, of course, he was 
steadfastly provincial. He always said that the local was far more important than the national, that life is lived at the local. And he was right. He loved Kilkenny. He loved the Nore Valley. He loved his little house on the banks of the Nore. And he was content to be there. So he didn't, you know, he didn't, as we've said, he didn't push himself. And maybe that's simply the reason. But it's a great pity that he's not better known because... As I've said, I think he is one of the very great writers that we that we produced in the last century. Well, perhaps we've done a little something to remedy that today. John Banville, as always, thank you so much for joining us on The Book Show. Thank you. Snow by John Banville is published by Faber and Faber, and the two collections of Hubert Butler essays edited by John, The Eggman and The Fairies, and The Invader Wore Slippers are available on the Notting Hill Editions imprint. Now, we're not metaphorically putting up the tree just yet, but Stephanie Preisner joins me with something of a Christmas list. Books she'd like to read, but which haven't yet been written, and possibly not for the reason you think. So, firstly, where are we starting with this? We're starting with the fact that I sometimes enjoy reading books, and when I do enjoy reading books, I want more of them once I'm finished. And I don't really want to like pick up another book and have to get to know another author. It's like going on a first date again. I'd rather go on a second date with someone I already know that I like. But some authors just refuse to give me what I want. So are we talking sequels or are we talking more of a certain character or more in a series or all of the above? All of the above, depending on the on the author and, and the franchise, let's say. You know, there are authors like, let's say, Patricia Cornwell or whatever. She writes about Kay Scarpetta. It's nice to get back into bed with your book and your character that you know. But then there are things like, you know, Harry Potter, obviously, where you'd like another book. And then there are authors like, let's say, J.K. Rowling, where she stops writing Harry Potter. People are like, we want more. And she's like, I'm not giving you more, but I'll give you this casual vacancy. And then we all cry into our pillows and waste 18 euro on a hardback copy. Okay, so what about the idea, though, that less is more sometimes? Well, I suppose as a writer, less is more. You want to keep your audience wanting more so you write less or else you kind of go out on a, you know, you're like, okay, I'm on a high now. So I'll say I'll just stop right here and we'll call me a genius. But as a reader, less is not more. You're looking at me as if there's something wrong with me. Well, no, but like he- you're pathologizing something which is very normal. I want more of what I enjoy. I think sometimes about disappointment. So I think, for instance, that, you know, for every book that does live up to your expectations for something that you previously loved, there can be a go set a watchman if you loved To Kill a Mockingbird, which I didn't read, but which everybody I know who read was disappointed by. I read The Testaments as well. And I'm one of the very few people who went maybe that Margaret now. Atwood should have just stopped with handmaid's tale oh yeah sorry okay margaret atwood and i i don't i'm as far as i'm concerned i i don't think there's a single book i know that i would like an author to write more of that particular book not since i think i was a kid and since i loved enid blyton and i was really disappointed when i found out that she died in 1968 and therefore couldn't write any more of the, the books that i loved i don't think i felt that since then well aren't you just great and really content in yourself and yes, OK, it is disappointing if you really, really want another book and then they bring one out and it's not as good. But is it too much to ask that they bring out something good again? OK, give me some examples. OK, have you ever read My Grandmother Asked Me To Tell You She's Sorry? Amazing book. I want more. He has more books. Not about that particular girl. They're good, but I want more of that story. Right. Adam Kay, This Is Going To Hurt. 
What an amazing book, right? Diary entries from his first year as a junior doctor. Everyone loved it. Sold out. Bestseller. Then he's like, right, I'll do another one. And he did. It was the night shift before Christmas. It is only a tiny book. It's fit in your back pocket. I think I read it at 20 minutes on a bus. Like, it's very, very short. It's not enough. I want more. You have lived experience of being a doctor. You're very funny. You're very observant. Write more. I want it. Marion Keyes is an interesting one, right? Because Rachel's Holiday was a brilliant book. I'm sure many of our listeners have read it and read it kind of across generations. It's one of those ones. It's not possible to go into a charity shop these days without seeing a copy of Marion Keyes' Rachel's Holiday. But then Marion herself, everyone wants a sequel because there's so many questions within the book. Will Rachel relapse? Rachel is even asking herself that question at the end. But then Marion herself comes out and is like, I'm writing a sequel to Rachel's Holiday. So now we're all fascinated but Marion must be feeling the weight of like oh god everyone wants this thing what if it's not good enough and and she's right to, because we're all like Marion your last one was brilliant are you gonna keep it up so that must be pressure but I'm very excited to read it and then Max Porter have you read any of his books yeah absolutely yeah so grief is the thing with feathers and then Lanny I would just want more from him. I just want a book from him every day. Like, you get an insight into this world that's just bananas. You're like, what is your brain? And can I please get into it for a little while? And you're allowed into this mad brain that is insightful and evocative and incredible when you read his books. I feel the Max Porter thing, but he's kind of upped his game now because his next book due out next year in 2021 is going to be The Death of Francis Bacon. So it includes Max Porter writing about my favourite artist in the same place. I don't want facts about Francis Bacon, like, unless he's imagining, and this is back to what we were talking about a few weeks ago, if he's going to be writing fiction about actual Francis Bacon, I've no interest in it. I think think that's exactly what he's doing. God, I'm already disappointed. It's not even finished yet. I get where you're coming from. I only ever feel it, though, I think, with, with actual authors. Not necessarily characters, not necessarily books. You know, I want a new Sally Rooney book. I want a new Kevin Barry book, even though one has just come out. A new Donald Ryan book, even though one has just come out this year. I want a new Haruki Murakami book. And when those things, I know that they're coming along, I feel that sense of anticipation. I don't know if it's always with single stories and single characters or, or single novels, though. So I think the thing that I'm just after realising is that you are attached to the author's And you want more, no matter what it is, of Sally Rooney, Kevin Barry, any of those. You don't care what they write. You just want their content. And I am attached to the characters that they create. And I want more of the same character. And I think there's a whole psychological analysis of both of us in that. But we don't have time for any more. Stephanie Preisner, see you next week. See ya. It's time for a book club to be paired with an author using the magic of the book show and its technology. This week, the readers are in County Antrim. Here is Claire Savage to tell us all about the Giants Causeway Book Club. The Giants Causeway Book Club was launched by the National Trust in June 2018, and as a local author, I was asked to host it. This involves selecting books to read throughout the year, preparing discussion topics and arranging author visits. The Giants Causeway Book Club is for both men and women, and it encourages people to read a range of genres, including books they wouldn't normally pick up, and to read not just contemporary authors, but also books published less recently. To date, we've read short story collections, literary and non-fiction, young adult and children's books, graphic novel and a play, as well as crime, thriller and various other genres. We meet on the last Thursday evening of every month, usually at the Causeway Hotel, where we're treated to fresh scones, tray bakes, tea and coffee. Since Covid, however, we've been meeting online via Zoom. We officially have about 20 members with a core 8 to 10 attending every month and others coming and going. We also encourage new members to come along at any time. 
In December, we'll be reading a collection of Christmas stories from authors in Northern Ireland, co-edited by myself and Kelly Crichton. The book is called Underneath the Tree and is funded by the Arts Council of Northern Ireland. All proceeds are being donated to the Simon Community NI and the World of Isles NI, and it's available to buy online as a paperback and ebook. It's always good to get the plug in. This week's book is won by the former laureate Nanog Sarah Crossan, who I'll talk to in a second. But first, here's Jen Michael from the Giants Causeway Book Club with a bit of context for the novel. One by Sarah Crossan is considered a young adult novel and it's written in a poetic or free verse style of writing. Most of us in the book club agreed that it was a book that we would never have chosen for ourselves. In it we meet Grace and Tippy who are conjoined twins. They are joined at the waist and they are 16 years of age. Up until this point, they have shared everything and cannot imagine life any other way. But something is happening to them and they face the most difficult decision of their lives. When we came together to discuss the book, we all absolutely loved it. It was actually our highest rated book of the year. We found the the style of writing incredibly engrossing. We thought it was extraordinarily crafted and incredibly moving, much to our surprise. I'm now joined by the author of One Sarah Cross. And Sarah, how are you? I'm not too bad. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Uh, Yours is the second book in a fortnight that we featured from 2015. Um, So far, the only one, though, to win the Carnegie Medal uh, for children's books. Were you surprised at the time by the reaction to it? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I was really surprised. It was a book that I sent to my editor with my eyes shut. Like, I literally pressed send with my eyes closed and wrote an apology and said, I'm so sorry about this, but this is all I've got right now and I'll do my best for the next book to fulfil the contract (laughs) in a more satisfactory way. So, yeah, to, you know, her immediate, she read it, I think, in two days or something and and said, we love it. And I was absolutely shocked and I I became more and more shocked as other people said they loved it. So, um, yeah, nice, nice to be surprised. Okay, let's take the first question about one. Here is Esther Reid from the Giants Causeway Book Club. The book has an unusual writing style and focuses on a topic that none of us had read about before, both of which really engaged us as readers. What inspired you to write in free verse and to look at the issue of conjoined twins in particular? Also, what sort of research did you do before writing the book? I suppose that's three sneaky questions. (laughs) Um, I have been writing in verse since I published my debut in 2012. That was a book called The Weight of Water. And then I went on to write in prose. I was enjoying writing in prose. But there was something about this character that that wanted brevity. Um, and there's a, there's a poeticism, I think, um, to their situation that made verse apt. Um, I had been teaching and living in the States when I discovered the verse novel for, for young adults. Um, and it worked so well there uh, to engage young people that I thought I would give it a try with my debut. And it really has seemed to speak to people. Um, I love the accessibility of verse. I love how quickly it can be read. A reader, I suppose, can finish the the novel in one or two sittings. That's always my hope, a little bit like a one-act play. And I was inspired to write about conjoined twins because I saw a documentary called Joined for Life by um, the BBC about 
some twins called Abby and Brittany Henzel. And I was thinking to myself, wow, what a, what a cool story this would be if I could write a love story about a conjoined twin who, who had fallen in love. And when I did the research, I realised this was not going to be a love story at all because conjoined twins are very happy together and, and don't want to be separated. And a love story would mean that one of them was longing to be separated. So, yeah, the research told me that the book was going to be a love story, but it was going to be a love story about sisterhood, which I think um, has gained a, a much wider readership, actually, um, and means it's it's much more authentic to the research that I did. And it's a difficult topic to research. It's quite... Um, shrouded in secrecy, doctors are very protective of, of their patients and so it was hard to find people I could talk to but eventually uh, I did. Um, I managed to convince some, some surgeons to, to chat with me uh, but it was a difficult one to research actually. Out of all the books that I've written, this one was the hardest. Okay, our second question is from Jason Bell. The story is told from Grace's point of view, who is the more introverted twin and, we later learn, the weaker one physically. Why did you decide to tell the story in her voice rather than Tippy's or both? And how important was it to you to portray them both as realistic teenagers living with a disability, not in spite of it? I suppose Tippy tends to verbalise her feelings um, and Grace doesn't do this so much. So the book really is about Grace's internalised world and her, her internal responses. And I was planning to write it also from Tippy's perspective, and I did begin to do that. So the, the novel was going to be sort of split in two. You'd have Grace's point of view and then Tippy's. But the whole point in writing the novel, in a way, was to, to show that twins are individuals and that this was Grace's story. So it seemed a bit of a contradiction for me to be trying to suggest that twins were individuals and then yet having to show the other perspective. Um, there seemed something wrong about that when I started to do the writing. And it's sort of interesting that you've picked up on the fact that this is a book about disability. And I, well, I like the fact that, that you've, you've picked up on that. But I also like when people don't pick up on it, because I suppose what I'm trying to write about is the, the universality of human experience and of growing up. You know, we all want to be, be loved and to belong. And that's what these girls want, just because they have unusual anatomies makes them no different. And I, I think the fact that they have these very visible differences, these very different bodies, is relatable for teenagers particularly because as a teenager your body is changing, people are commenting on it, people are looking at it growing and changing. And so I think that's one of the reasons that that young readers understand how, how Tippy and Grace feel to, to a certain extent. And the final question from the North Antrim Coast about Sarah Crossan's novel One comes from Stuart Wilson. There are a lot of heartbreaking moments in the book which packs a lot into the story, such as how the twins are treated at school and the romance between two of the characters, amongst other things. Are you surprised to find that adult readers such as ourselves connect so much with the story which is technically aimed at a young adult audience? Well, firstly, I'm glad that you did connect with the uh, novel, so thank you for that. Um, and I suppose that books for children and teens can engage adults in the same way that any other art form would, um, in the way that films do. So my daughter and I watched Jingle Jangle at the weekend, and I cried, and she cried. But it really, I'm, I'm just trying to write in a way that doesn't patronise or manipulate my teen reader. And that means I'm required... I think to do some of the emotional work myself. 
So my disclaimer is that I lived in America for eight years, so um, I'm very sort of influenced by this this need within my art to do the digging, do the sort of emotional digging myself. Um, and for one, I did that, you know, I, I kind of scooped out my guts for that, for that book. And I, I do that for any book that I want taken seriously. I feel like I have to work out why it is that I'm writing the book that I'm writing. And so although the book is is ostensibly about conjoined twins and about disability and about there's poverty, you know, there's poverty in this family and also alcoholism. For me, it's a book about motherhood. I was, at the time, I'd just become a mother when I wrote the book. And I was learning about what it feels to be attached to another person and never wanting to let that person go and how I could let that person go. Um, so I think that, in a way, all art, regardless to whom it's aimed, must firstly be about the artist and be and be a response to something that the artist is feeling or going through. And that's why I hope that it does connect to as many readers as possible, because it's authentic, and I've done that by writing about myself. Before I let you go, Sarah, your, your first novel, specifically written for adults, uh, Here's the Beehive, came out a while back. It's only out in the, in the US this week. What's the reaction been like so far? Um, it's been interesting, really interesting. I guess it's a, a dark book compared to my, my books for teenagers, although I write about death row and um, all kinds of things. Um, but I think the character is not particularly likeable, um, which some readers have found difficult, but then other readers have, have loved that she's not likeable. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a Marmite book, I think. So hopefully it'll also be one for book clubs where people will argue about it and say how horrid she is or how sympathetic she is. Um, so fingers crossed that, that people connect to that book as well. Well, I think it's a spectacular piece of work and I've been saying that in, in quite a lot of places uh, up until now. Sarah Crossan, it's always brilliant to talk to you. Thanks a million. Thank you so much, Rick. One by Sarah Crossan and her latest here is The Beehive are published by Bloomsbury and Bloomsbury Circus respectively. And as Claire Savage from the book club said, the collection of 12 seasonal stories underneath the tree edited by herself and Kelly Crichton with proceeds going to the Simon community NI and the world of owls NI is available to buy online now. Thanks to Sarah and to the Giants Causeway Book Club in County Antrim for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group, you know where we are. You can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at bookshowrte. This week on Shelf Analysis, two episodes. One on Tuesday where I talk to some kids' books experts about the books that you can buy for the kids in your life this coming Christmas. And then on Wednesday night, we spoke to him here on the book show a few weeks ago. Frank Cotterell Boyce is my guest on Shelf Analysis. You can watch both on the Shelf Analysis YouTube channel or, of course, catch them later on on RTE Culture. I'll talk to you again next week and as ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books that we feature on the programme. 